From Booksmart Studios, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. This is, by the way, my 175th episode. Thank you for those of you who have actually stayed with me for that long. But in any case, what I wanted to share is a kind of a summer romp. My birthday is in October, and big surprise, I got some books in 2022, and I've just now, because I've been really backed up lately, gotten around to reading some of them. And one of them was this wonderful book called The New Yorkers by Sam Roberts, who is a New York Times writer in the same way that I am. And he basically has these 31 capsule histories of New Yorkers you probably haven't heard of. Real potato chip book. I wouldn't read in order because, you know, some of the you know the Dutch 1600s ones, maybe they're only so interesting. But if you just kind of skip around and after a while you have read all 31, you really do get a sense of the history of New York. And one thing that really grabbed me was about Levi Weeks. He is early New York. It's 1799. And he is this guy in New York who is accused of murdering his girlfriend, Elma Sands. And so there was a murder trial, and there is a transcription of it, a transcription of people actually speaking. This is the first transcript of a murder trial in United States history. And, you know, that's not what the capsule biography is about. But, of course, as a linguist, I thought, well, wait a minute. What is this transcript? Really, what it gets down to is, How did people in New York City in 1800, at the very beginning of which this trial was, how did those people talk? Because they didn't talk the way people talk now. They didn't talk like this. That accent didn't exist yet. How did they talk? And one of the only ways to get a sense of it is to read how these people were transcribed as speaking. Now, I doubt if the transcription is absolutely accurate. Nevertheless, it does have something to do with the way ordinary people were actually talking because what they're expressing is in different form in many ways than the way we would express ourselves. And there's so many fascinating little things. I'm just going to take you by the hand through the transcript of this trial and share with you some of the things that I found interesting in it. So, for example, last show, we talked about how English wants each verb to have only one form that doubles as both the past and the past participle. Well, you know, it's easy to think there's something wrong with the way people speak English now. But as I said, those forms, the past and the participle and which one is which, etc., that is always in flux. It's like a kaleidoscope, and you can see it in the week's trial transcript. And so, for example, on account of its being froze, the murder took place in the winter in, in the snow. She ended up at the bottom of a well, actually. But on account of its being froze, not frozen. So remember the rule that we kind of subconsciously internalize, which is that if there is an N form, if the participle is an N, then what we really want is for the past form to be the participle. So it was froze. People were already saying that at least 223 years ago. Or A doctor says, and this is a person who, you know, for the time has a certain education, I thought the left collarbone was broke. So instead of saying, I got taken in a card game, I got took in a card game. English as she is spoke rather than spoken. I thought the left collarbone was broke. So the same sort of thing is going on when we are a very new nation and miserable, dirty, swine-laden, murderous New York City, (laughs) lower Manhattan in 1800. 
So people were messing with the past and the participles back then, just as they are now. It's very much English as she was spoke, so to speak. Another thing you see in the trial, this is interesting because usually you have to go to Jane Austen to get this. You know how in French and Italian and in German, there's that annoying thing? From English, it's an annoying thing where when you talk about the perfect, well, most verbs take have, but some of them take is. And so, for example, I am fallen in French is suis tombé, not I have fallen. J'ai tombé, je suis tombé. So I is fallen and I can't get up, you would say in French. And you are returned rather than you have returned and you are come. And you just have to learn them. And if you like French and Italian, well, they're different ones in Italian than in French. That's a, a European business that some verbs are about being something rather than having something. And there are reasons for it that need not detain us. But the thing is, English is a Germanic language. German does that. Almost all the other Germanic languages do it. And so reason dictates that probably earlier English did it too. As always, English today is a very peculiar language as European languages go. What we think of as normal is very often highly abnormal for languages of Europe. And as it happens, in Old English and into Middle English, it was the same thing as with French and Italian. You had some verbs where you used to be instead of have. And they held on longer than you might think. So, for example, today when we say someone is gone, we now think of the gone as just an adjective. And you can practically use it that way. He's a real gone kid, meant to the beatniks that somebody was really enjoying music or probably some substance or something else. But actually, is gone is a remnant of that French-Italian thing. And in English, 1700s, well into the 1800s, there were still remnants of that usage. So here are these humble shopkeepers and lumber sellers and house livers who are involved in this trial of these you know, people who are hardly, especially educated people, hardly on their way to anything particularly interesting. And so it's not that they're talking, quote unquote, like Jane Austen characters. They're just people. And yet what they say is not before she had returned, before she is returned. Somebody asks, is Elma gone to bed? Is Elma gone to bed? Not has Elma gone to bed? Or is Elma got home? We would say, has Elma got home yet? They say, is Elma got home? There's a good handful of verbs where they're still using the is. They wouldn't have been thrown if they decided to teach themselves some French or some Italian by that difference between in French, avoir and être, and in Italian, it's avere and essere. They wouldn't be bothered because they are returned. The sun is gone down and they wonder if Elma is got home. Interesting. Another thing, I'm just going to pick them out. You get these things where it seems like people don't understand how to put words together, but it's not that. It's that, once again, their English is closer to earlier English, believe it or not, than ours, because they are alive 223 years ago, and we just aren't. And so, at one point, someone says, she followed me in where was two young men of the family. Get this. She followed me in where was two young men of the family. A little odd. We would think, she follows me in where two young men of the family was. Now, never mind that 
He doesn't say were. That's a whole other thing that we'll get to. But she followed me in where two young men of the family were. That's what it's supposed to be. But instead, she followed me in where was two young men of the family. And you think, well, maybe the transcriber was blowing his nose then or something like that. But actually, you get more of them. And so someone at another point says, and came into the room where was Elias Ring, Mrs. Ring, the deceased and two boarders. Isn't that weird? And came into the room where was Elias Ring, Mrs. Ring, the deceased and two boarders. You know what that is? That is something that Germanic languages do, which, of course, English has chucked, but it hadn't chucked it as much in 1800. So, for example, it's time to go to the store, Fred said. That's normal. But notice that you almost want me to say, it's time to go to the store, said Fred. That little formula there. Why is it that way? Why is it that you reverse it? We would say Fred said something, not said Fred something. But it's time to go to the store, said Fred. What that is, is this thing in Germanic languages, it's very strange, where the verb doesn't want to move. And so you'll say something like, I go to the movies. Okay, now, go is in the second place, but you don't think about it, because how else would you put it? I go to the movies. Okay, but in German... You don't say, tomorrow I go to the movies. That's not right. In German, you have to say, tomorrow go I to the movies. So if you start out with tomorrow, go won't move. Instead, I has to jump and be after go and then to the movies. So I go to the movies. Go is second. Tomorrow go I to the movies. Go is second. Go won't move. The verb just sits there like somebody nailed it down. That's this interesting thing. It's, it's called V2, and it's something that Germanic languages do for some reason, and English used to as well. The verb won't move. And so, you could say something like, two young men of the family was there. Okay, that's th- these people would have said that too. But if you're going to say where two young men of the family was, well, if where is sitting there in front, was isn't going to move. So you can't say where two young men of the family was. You have to say where was, and then two young of the family has to jump. It's that same thing. These people have Germanic style V2 more than we do. We now just have it basically in that silly formulation in fiction. And so we're going to have to do a seventh volume, said Harry Potter, or something like that. That's all we've got. But they had more. And so, and came into the room where was Elias Ring, Mrs. Ring, the deceased, and two boarders. There is a wonderful song from this musical film. It was called Thank Your Lucky Stars. It was during World War II. It's quite perishable, but Thank Your Lucky Stars, just by chance, has wonderful songs. Almost nothing that happens is particularly interesting, but it has wonderful songs. Very starry cast, too, but no one doing anything interesting until people open up their mouths and sing. And for some reason, Arthur Schwartz and Frank Lesser, who were Broadway guys, or in Frank Lesser's case, were going to be Broadway guys, just wrote all these great songs. And one of my favorites is called Ice Cold Katie. Ice Cold Katie is the black number in it. Hattie McDaniel of Gone with the Wind fame, she leads it. And it's rare that you see Hattie McDaniel leading a musical number, so that's one of the nice things about it. But it's also damn catchy. I mean, you almost wish there were different words to it. I think this could have been more famous. What a wonderful 
swinging, infectious melody. So the idea is that Katie Brown, for some reason, doesn't want to marry the soldier. That's what the number is about. This is a stage number within the, the movie. This is supposed to be something going on on stage. And, you know, the words, well, who cares? But listen to this tune. And maybe the words are kind of cute. I told Katie, won't you do it today? So, in order to make that have anything to do with the topic, another thing about the week's trial is that you hear people say some very interesting things, especially one person. Listen to this from one person. No other person was up in the house but we four. She didn't say no other person was in the house but we four. She said no other person was up in the house but we four. But what's interesting is that if you go through the whole trial, they weren't up anything in the house. They're talking about being in the house on the bottom floor. What's the up? And are some of you familiar with how what that sounds like is black slang? Because it is today. When you hear somebody say up in the house, the up has a different meaning. I once heard somebody say, there was butt naked people up in my house. And apparently there had been. He had an apartment on the ground floor. There was nothing up to be where he lived. That up has a meaning that has nothing to do with verticality. It indicates the intimate. And so you would say, I was up at Sam's. And up at Sam's means that Sam's is a comfortable place, especially to you. You would never say, I was up at the dentist's, because you don't really, you don't want to be there. Well, here's this person who's saying, no other person was up in the house, but we four. Now, we can't go back to what this old female person meant by up. But it has an interesting sound, especially given that later she says this. It was difficult to shut it. It was something out of order. I then run upstairs. So it was difficult to shut it. That's mainstream. It was something out of order. Now, the way most of us would put it is there was something out of order. But she says it was something out of order. And you know, that's black English as well. And so it was buck naked people up in my house. The person didn't say there were buck naked people up in my house. It was. That use of it for presentational there, that's black English. And then the person says, I then run upstairs. Now, this is an interesting thing because there's no reason to think that the person who says this is black. Almost certainly if she were black, like if she were an elderly black maid or something like that, they would have said that she was colored or a negress or the terms that they used back then. Probably she was white. But what the message is here is that a great deal of black English, and therefore a great deal of what we think of as black about black English, as African-American about it, actually comes from white dialects. Most of the things that make up what black English is are white English things that we never hear in America because the dialects in question are today spoken in Britain and Ireland. It's a funny thing. And so you think somebody saying, you know, it was something out of order. That is from 
way over across the Atlantic Ocean, not something that black people created right here. Up in the house is a mystery. I'm not aware of what the source of that is. It may be something that was spontaneously created in black English here, but maybe not because this is almost certainly a white woman who says this. No other person was up in the house, but we four. Somebody could do a study you know, with the technology that there is now where you could actually single out what kind of up you meant with statistical procedures and see whether this up is something modeled on something that was said in colloquial white dialects a long time ago. Very interesting. Wait a minute. You didn't think Ice Cold Katie was catchy? All right. Probably because of Hattie McDaniel's weird voice in the old sound. All right. How about this? Here is another rendition of Ice Cold Katie. This will be real fast. You don't have to sit through the whole thing. But I said it was a catchy song. This is, of course, it's a Looney Tune. It's called Tom, Turk, and Daffy. And under the credits, Carl Stalling put Ice Cold Katie because Looney Tunes are Warner Brothers and Thank You Lucky Stars was a Warner Brothers film. And so he could use that song for free and he had good musical taste. So listen to Ice Cold Katie, a bit of it, swinging under the credits. See? It's a good song. Anyway, if you want a bonus segment on more about the language in this trial, and there will be one, then what you have to do is subscribe to us at booksmartstudios.org. All you have to do is click on Lexicon Valley, and you can find out how to do it. Give us a little money, and you get an extra segment. Another thing about this fascinating trial transcript, it's really worth going through it. Sentence by sentence, it's not that long, and you can actually take it all in, is that the people in question here happen to be Quakers. Nobody talks about it much, but they are Quaker people, and it does affect their language. And it's a funny thing that's happening. Quakers were known, linguistically, for refusing to give in to having you refer both to the plural and the singular. That situation in English is very, very strange, actually. And originally, thou was singular you, and then you was only for the plural. So you is two, three, or four people. Then you started being able to refer to a single person as you out of politeness. And then in English, for some reason, after a while, you just took over everything, like, you know, some sort of invasive species, and thou became an archaism that nobody ever uses. And that was pretty much the case by 1700. The Quakers didn't like it. They didn't like the idea of addressing individuals as if they were exalted somehow. They found it ungodly. So they kept the thou and the thee forms to the point of getting hurt sometimes if you were addressing somebody as thou or thee at a time when it was processed as something that would mark you with disrespect. It got to that point. There were people who actually got hit calling somebody thou or thee. It was kind of like today if you called somebody like you little, that's what it was. So these people use thou and thee, except not thou. They're actually using thee, which is the object form. So I, me, thou, thee. But these people use thee as the subject. So, for example, okay, Quaker voice, 1800. Um, okay. <laughs> the went more softly than ever before. So, the went, not thou went, but the went. Or at another point, somebody says, I know thee knows. So, I know thee knows, but it's, it's supposed to be, quote unquote, I know thou knows. 
or someone says this, it's rather poetic. Give me thy firm opinion from the bottom of thy heart, for I don't doubt thee has one. Tell me the truth, what thee thinks has become of her. Like she's down in the well. So, thee thinks. What, what is that? Why couldn't they tell the subject from the object? It's all of a piece, really. This is around the same time that stuffy pantses start complaining that people are saying things like me and Bill went to the drugstore to pick up some laudanum or something like that. That was considered barbaric, just as it is now. That didn't happen in Old English. That didn't happen in Middle English. That starts with early modern English. And the reason is that the language becomes one that is no longer sensitive to distinctions between, say, subject and object, or a verb form that's different if it's second person singular versus third person singular, so thinkst versus thinketh. As all of that stuff starts dropping off, things like I as subject and me as object only start not feeling plausible to somebody speaking English, because English is becoming a very different kind of language that does things more like, for example, French, where me and Bill went to the drugstore to get some laudanum today would be perfectly legal. And so, it was the same thing with thou and thee, where a language after a while where making that distinction doesn't feel like what English does. There are other things that we do that are extremely difficult, such as the future tense. So, I buy some socks tomorrow. I'll buy some socks tomorrow. I will buy some socks tomorrow. I'm going to buy some socks tomorrow. I'm going to buy some socks tomorrow. All five of those things are how we express the future. All of them are slightly different. And if you think about it, if you know somebody who speaks very, very good English, maybe one thing they don't completely have is that. And that's because the English future is really, really tough. So it's not that English fell apart, but it's just that difficulty in terms of things like thou, thee, or I only as a subject and me only as an object, those sorts of things became not quite what we do. And that's what you see with these Quakers in the Weeks trial, where they do not use thou and thee the way people had been as recently as 200 years ago. So somebody says, Levi, because this is Levi Weeks is the one who is supposedly the killer. Levi, if I was to do it, thee knows it would be positive lies. So thee knows. Well, you know, why not? English is becoming at this time complicated in different ways, such as gonna, going to, and gonna have just evolved. So you have this new difference between will and gonna. And let's not even get into shall, which had been there since Old English. And you know, there was more of that sort of thing with was. So I was, you were, he, she, it was, we were, y'all were, they were. So there's supposed to be these changing forms, and it's kind of weird because in English, the typical thing is that only in the third person singular do you have a change, and it's that you add a s. So I walk, you walk, he, she, it walks, we walk, y'all walk, they walk. English is the only language known in the world where in the present tense, there's only one verb difference like that, and it's in the third person singular. It feels so normal if you're an English speaker that you have that little change when you say he, she, or it. That is a weird thing. One more weird thing about English. But was and were, where it's going to be was, but then were, then was, then were, were, were. That's irregular. English wanted to get rid of that. Once again, English has long been a language which, for reasons that are controversial, has tended to shed needlessly complicated things like that, while languages like German just hold on to them. And so, was often sounds, frankly, quite illiterate among these people. And regardless 
of what level of education they had. And so, for example, I and my wife was coming to town in a wood sleigh. I and my wife was coming to town in a wood sleigh, so not were. Or, the doors was made without any mistake, says somebody. And you're thinking, well, he's but a hewer of wood, and so he's ignorant, and so he can't handle verbs. But no, what about a lawyer who asks, where, sir, was you on the night of the 22nd of December, 1799? Where, sir, was you? And I should add, as I'm almost sure I've said on this show, but it's getting to have been so long. This is my seventh year, folks, that I don't always remember what I've talked about. But the Adamses, John and Abigail Adams, use was in this way. These are the first other wases that I've seen in the United States, and it's very interesting. Where, sir, was you on the night of the 22nd of December, 1799. So many things in this transcript. And you know, there's something else. This is this is a fun thing, and I definitely have discussed this on this show. I have claimed in the past that in the old days, people were freer about having cartoon characters use profanity. And I gave some examples of damn and hell. And then I gave an example that I think is just so lovely, which is the very first Looney Tunes star character, Bosco. At first, he's kind of supposed to be black, and after that, he's just supposed to be some boring Mickey Mouse knockoff. Bosco is of limited interest today, but if you sit through enough of them, you very occasionally find something interesting. Frankly, you find one thing in all of them from 1930 to 1933, and it is this. In one of them, you could swear that Bosco, he's he's playing the piano in a theater, and there's a villain up on the screen who's about to put a girl in danger. And Bosco turns to the audience. You could swear he says, The dirty fuck! Listen, listen to this. This is from Bosco's Picture Show, 1933. The dirty fuck! Oh, yeah, looks right. It sounds like it, doesn't it? And so for a long time, I really did think that they had had Bosco saying, Fuck, but, you know, it's not... It. And there are various stories. If you look at the mouth movements carefully, he's not saying fuck, he's saying pup. And it turns out that in the 30s and before, to call somebody a pup was a major insult. And if you know to look for that, you find it in different places. And so, for example, in this trial, one person says, I told him he was an impertinent puppy. What a strange thing to say, but the context is that that is really fighting words. He's a dirty puppy. I told him he was an impertinent puppy. And then more archaic language. After that, he says, afterwards, being sensible of his error, he begged my pardon. So being sensible of his error. Notice that that's not how we would use sensible. We think of sensible as meaning somebody who has a good head on their shoulders. Sensible in earlier English, meant sensitive, aware of. It was more like what sensible means in French today. It's one of those things where in Shakespeare, or even in later things, you feel like you've got it, but you don't quite. It's because of words like sensible that have a slightly different meaning than they do today. Sensible of his error doesn't throw you completely, but it does make these people often sound just a little tiny bit drunk. And then finally... You really feel the humanity of these people because their actual words are more or less being transcribed. And so, at one point, somebody says, it's actually a doctor, he says, I examined such parts as were comatable. 
So, come atable. He means the parts that he could actually get to under the circumstances. And you can imagine what the parts were. It's her corpse. And he says, I examined such parts as were comatable. That sounds like something that somebody would make up on the fly today. It sounds kind of like somebody talking about their happy place or making up a word like hangry as were comatable. We will never know whether comatable was a set term at the time or, you know, we will never know is my euphemism for I don't know. Maybe people who have studied these things know, but I don't know whether people were running around saying comatable when John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were president. But it's kind of cute that somebody said comatable in this trial in 1800, isn't it? In any case, that's the week's trial. That is my trip through it. I highly recommend it. You get a slice of old New York. You get Quakers. You get comatability. You get thou and thee. You get all sorts of weird locutions. You get to see how English verbs have been a mess since time immemorial. And you just get an interesting thing to pass the time during a long, hot summer. If you'd like to leave a comment or subscribe, please visit booksmartstudios.org. Our producer is the always patient Mike Volo. Go to booksmartstudios at gmail.com not only to subscribe, but leave me some bonus questions. You leave me a question about something that's been you know, sticking in your craw or something you've always been curious about. Every two weeks, I answer a couple in writing on the site, not here. And if you want to see possibly an answer to your question, and I try to answer as many as I can, then subscribe and you can get in on that action. Our theme music was created by Harvest Creative Services, and I am John McWhorter. <laughs>